listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Recently, I was in a conversation, and I accidentally re- referred to myself as a lentecostal. And it was, a, it was a perfect Freudian slip, because that's exactly, I think that's right. I think that's who I am. I'm a lentecostal, not a pentecostal, but a lentecostal. So today is the first Sunday in Lent, and we're talking about what it looks like to come out of the shadows, what it, to, to bring what is in the shadows to God. And so I want to reflect just for a little bit on that, on that with you and call you into lentecostalism with me for just a moment. So we're going to start in the Gospel of Mark, which is, you're not allowed to say this, but it's my favorite gospel. It's my favorite gospel in part because historically it's the most neglected of all all of the four gospels. If you look at Christian history, it's the gospel that's been given the least attention by preachers and commentators and scholars. And it's easy to overlook. It's It's the shortest gospel. But oddly, it's the most detailed gospel. So Mark tells fewer stories, but as a rule, when he tells the story, he gives more detail than the other gospel writers do. And, but he's in a hurry, in a sense. He's, even though he's giving you detail all along the way, he's moving quickly as well. And so, for instance, in the gospel of Mark, we don't have a long genealogy. We don't have a, a pre-story like we do in Luke, where we, we hear about Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary's visitation from the angel, he gets right to the action, right? And he tells you right away, this is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, the gospel of Jesus, and begins with John the Baptist and the baptism. So in verse 9 of chapter 1, we've already come to Jesus as a man about to be baptized. So let's pick up there in the story. In these days, Jesus came from Nazareth Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. So again, you can see Mark as storyteller, like drawing your attention to, he comes, he's baptized in the Jordan, and as he's coming up out of the water, He sees the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. So it seems that he hears the voice, he sees the dove, he sees the heavens torn. And notice what Mark does not do here. He does not delineate the the temptations. He does not give us an account of what the temptations were and how Jesus defeated them. He simply says, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. And this is a detail that you find only in Mark. And the angels waited on him. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. And then, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, in in Mark's telling, which again, you can see, it it seems slight. It seems compressed. But there are all kinds of resonances to Israel's history here. That Jesus is 
reenacting and pre-enacting all at once. And, and the details are compressed together so that there's, there's a lot of overlap. The, the, the sounds are overlapping. The, the images are overlapping for each other. One of the things that's being called forth, of course, is Israel's time in the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness. So in quite obvious way, Jesus is reenacting Israel's time in the wilderness. And he's there for 40 days, as they were there for 40 years. And of course, that not only recalls Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, but also Moses' 40 days with God on the mount, and Elijah's 40 days with God in prayer as well. And so there's, there's a way in which Mark, just by giving us that detail about the 40 days, draws up this story of Israel in the wilderness and Moses and Elijah in the wilderness. But he also clearly knows, Mark clearly knows, the Psalms. And there is a passage in Psalm 78 that refers to Israel in exile as the dove in the wilderness, protected from the wild beasts. So the image that Psalm 78 uses for Israel in exile is a dove in the wilderness protected from wild beasts. So Mark not only is drawing on the wilderness wandering stories and drawing on Moses and Elijah stories, he's also drawing our attention to the fact that the dove has settled on Jesus, he's gone into the wilderness, and he's with the wild beasts, and they do not devour him. So the, the exile is being called up as well, which suggests that Jesus is Israel, but Jesus is also God. And again, Mark, in his spirit-inspired genius, is, is kind of giving us all of this quickly, compressed in overlapping images. So Jesus is Israel, but there's a difference. Notice, Jesus receives no signs in the wilderness. Right? There, the promise that God gives to Israel is that he will provide for them the manna that comes, the water that flows from the rock. But Jesus refuses that in the wilderness. He doesn't turn stones to bread. He doesn't call water from a rock. So Jesus is wilderness. Jesus is Israel in the wilderness, but he's Israel in the wilderness differently. He's Israel in the wilderness in a way that both reenacts that history, but reenacts it differently. Jesus is God in this sense, in that he's in exile, but the Shekinah of God has moved with Israel into this exile. He's, he's there in the wilderness but he's not abandoned by God. He is God in the abandonment. Right? But it's not only the wandering in the wilderness and the exile. It's also recalling Israel's kingdoms from Saul and David and Solomon and on. Because of what the Lord says over, what the Father says over Jesus at the baptism. You are my son, my beloved. Which is language from Psalm 2 and is language throughout Israel's history associated with the king. The king is God's son who is the beloved. And of course, that's primarily a story about David. David, the man who's after God's own heart, the one that God calls up as Israel's true king, that singles out as Israel's true king. And so Jesus is David. But notice, Jesus is David without bloody hands. You remember in David's story, he, he desires to build God a house, and he is forbidden to do so because his hands are bloody. So Jesus is David, but he's David differently. And Mark, by drawing our attention to what the Father has said over the Son, is reminding us, if we know our scriptures, he's reminding us 
that Jesus is enacting the kingdoms of Israel. He's also reminding us about the conquest. You remember that Israel conquers the land of Canaan, right? Drives out the inhabitants, or at least they're commanded to. In the Psalms, whenever the conquest comes up, it's only lament that Israel did not do what God had called them to do. But here, Jesus is Joshua, who defeats the enemy and drives out the enemy, but notice, without conflict. Did you notice in, in the story that Mark told us, he didn't describe the battle between Jesus and Satan. He simply said he was driven out into the wilderness and was there 40 days and was tempted by Satan. It doesn't say that he defeated Satan. It doesn't say here are the blow-by-blow blow accounts of how he defeated Satan. It simply says he was defeated. By, I mean, he was tempted by Satan. But we know that in that he is defeating him. So Jesus is Joshua, but he's Joshua differently. He's Joshua conquering the enemy simply by letting the enemy attack him. He's, again, David without bloody hands. He defeats his enemy here by doing nothing more than making himself available for the enemy to attack. And then he is reenacting the Exodus. And this is one that's it's, it's impossible to miss, right? Jesus goes into the water and out of it, right? Which recalls Israel's story about the miraculous crossing through the Red Sea and then the crossing through the Jordan, right? So the wilderness experience is bracketed by two passings through the water. Pass through the Red Sea, pass through the Jordan. But notice this difference. Jesus does not pass through on dry land. The waters do not part for him. He goes down into the waters. And so Jesus is Moses, but he's Moses differently. He's Moses going down with Pharaoh. As Bob Eckblad says, says, Jesus is going down to die with the damned. And then is raised up from that place. And that's what we're reenacting in baptism. We are buried with him in baptism and raised to life with him. So we are dead with the dead. We are brought down with the damned and then brought to life, right? Just like Jesus is doing. Mark is also reminding us of the plagues in that little detail about the angels. So in the Psalms and in Israel's history, when the plagues are described, the plagues, of course, that come against, come against Egypt to force them to let Israel go. It's said that God acts through destroying angels. Remember that last event, the one that kind of breaks the back of the Egyptian empire, is that the death angel passes over. Man, when I was a kid, that was the most horrifying image, like the, the idea of the death angel passing by without blood on the doorpost, right? So I, I wanted, I tried to get my parents to literally do that just in case. <laughs> like, I wasn't sure that spiritually it was enough, like, Let's get some blood, at least some, some food coloring, and mark the lentils. Right? We do not want to do any kind of passing by of the death angel. But notice, Jesus in the wilderness is ministered to by angels. So Jesus is not only Israel, David, and Moses. Jesus is Pharaoh. Jesus is Egypt. And he goes down in the water as Pharaoh and his army did, armies did, and he receives the ministry of angels rather than their destruction. And, of course, there is an, an allusion to the creation, right? That there is the water, the spirit hovering over the water, and the heavens above. But 
And Jesus is with the wild animals like Adam is with the beasts. But it's different because here everything is changing, right? Jesus, what does he see? He sees the heavens torn apart. He sees creation coming undone as the new Adam and the spirit settling on him. And then the detail that I want to focus on for today is this also recalls the Noah story. You remember Genesis 6, another, another passage of scripture that terrified me as a kid. Genesis 6 talks about the angels who take wives from the daughters of men and have superhuman children, right? Fascinating text. If you, if you don't know about it, it's better to just ignore it. But if you do know about it, it is very strange, very strange. So there's this passage about angels. But the most important detail, I think, is this reference to the wild beasts on the other side of the settling of the dove, right? Remember the Noah story? Noah's on the ark. It's raining. There's no light in the ark. I mean, it's a lot like being in a pandemic, I think. You're kind of compressed with people you love and then start to love a little less over time as time passes. You're kind of in the dark and things start to smell. It's kind of dangerous. I mean, he's on an ark, not a very big ark, by the way, with, you know, all the animals of the world. I mean, that, that could get pretty, I don't know how you sleep under those conditions at all, right? And you're there, you're there with your family for day after day after day after day. And so he's ready to get off the ark. And so he sends out a raven, remember? Raven comes back, clearly there's no, there's no land. He sends out a dove, comes back, clearly there's nowhere to land. He sends out a dove, it comes back, nowhere to land. The third time he sends out a dove and the dove does not come back. It has settled on the new creation. So when Mark tells us that Jesus comes up out of the waters and the spirit as a dove rests on him, he's telling us that Jesus is the new creation. And immediately he goes into the wilderness where he's with the wild beasts. So in these details about the dove and the beasts, it's clear that Mark wants us to think about Noah. And the lectionary readings for the day won't let you miss that because the Old Testament reading is Genesis 9, which is the story of the end of the story of Noah, or almost the end of the story of Noah, in which God tells Noah, I'm establishing a covenant with you and your descendants and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, every beast of the earth with you. So God makes this covenant, I will never again destroy everything as I've done here. And then the New Testament reading is from 1 Peter 3, which reads like this, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Notice the way Peter says he's put to death, and this is pre-enacted in his baptism, and then of course, enacted at the cross, but he's made alive in the spirit, in which he also went, in the spirit, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, remember this phrase, the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water and baptism which this prefigured now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. So notice this detail about Jesus proclaiming the good news to these spirits in prison, another very strange text. And that the Noah story is the story that prefigures, Peter says, our baptism by which we are saved. So as I was thinking this week about these passages, when I read that line in Peter, Spirits in Prison, it reminded me of C.S. Lewis's book of poems that he wrote. They were published in 1919 before his conversion to Christianity while he was still identified as an atheist about the experience of World War I. And the, the title of that series of poems is called Spirits in Bondage. But the title that he proposed was Spirits in Prison. So that came from somewhere back in my memory, and I Googled it and read some of the poems again. And while I was reading the poem, I came on, the, so there, there, I think there are 16 separate poems in the cycle of poems, and one of them ends like this. What call have I to dream of anything? I am a wolf. Back to the world again, and speech of fellow brutes that once were men. Our throats can bark for laughter, but cannot sing. I am a wolf, and back to the world with fellow brutes who once were men. Our throats can bark, but cannot sing. And that made me think, that's what the story of Noah is about. Not Noah on the ark, but Noah as the ark. Not the wild beasts he's with, but the wild beasts that are in him. Because this, this is one of the problems with the way my tradition taught us to read scripture. And I, I've come to be convinced of this. The more people talk about scripture, the less they actually read it. And the higher their praise of it, the lower their attention to the details. Right? It, it, it's, it reminds me of something my dad used to say. My dad was a Marine, and then a cop, and then a mechanic. It's like a character from a Flannery O'Connor novel. His favorite plant is a cactus. All that's true. And we, I've only really seen him moved to tears at the beauty of the world once, and it's when we were in the desert. Like, there's something about, about that that moves him, right? I love you, Dad, if you're watching this. <laughs> Keep watching. It gets better. So this, this experience of, of wildness, my dad used to say, again, marine, cop, mechanic, cactus lover, that it's never the person who talks tough who is. The people who talk the most about how tough they are are always bullies who are fronting. I don't know that he said it quite like that, but you get the point. And I think there's something true about that as it relates to Scripture. The people who talk about prayer the most are probably not the ones who are praying the most. And the people who talk the most about Scripture are probably not actually reading it. And I, I say that, and I'm, I'm serious to say it when I say it, because if you actually go back and read the text, we've mistold all of these stories. Let me give you a couple of examples. One of them, and the preachers that I grew up with, which were old school Pentecostal, pre not Lentecostal, Pentecostal preachers with the handheld mics and saying, give me more reverb, those preachers, 
you know, with the towels for handkerchiefs and the, the suit coats that had 19 buttons on them, like those preachers, if you don't know about that, again, it's better for you not to look into it. <laughs> they would often tell the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel as the, the call to revival. You remember the story Ahab and Jezebel, which they, these preachers invariably tied to whoever the president was at the time in the U.S. Ahab and Jezebel are in the White House and they are leading Israel into wickedness. And Elijah rises up and calls people to revival. And then there's a showdown between the true prophet of God and all of those false prophets that are on Christian television. And there on the mount, God answers with fire. Remember the story, right? Fire comes down and consumes not only the sacrifice, but eats up everything, even the altar itself. And then Elijah kills a bunch of people. And the story is over, except... The story isn't over in Scripture. And here's the thing that we never heard. It didn't work. Like in the story that's actually in Scripture, all of that happens and nothing changes. There's this huge dramatic moment. Fire comes from heaven. And for a moment, all of Israel says, Yahweh is God. But ten minutes later, Ahab is still king. Jezebel is still in power. And the prophet flees to the wilderness and hides. And that's what leads to another story we heard a lot about, the still small voice story. You remember this one? All right, so in that account, which we never somehow connected to the previous one, even though it's the, exact, it's the same story and it happens in the next chapter. Elijah is in a cave. God says to him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm hiding for my life. I am the only one who is faithful. And you remember God says, no, 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 no. I have 7,000 prophets who have not bowed the knee. And then we get that scene, fire and wind. And remember, God is not in those things, reminding us that in the previous moment when fire descended from heaven, God is not in the fire. That's why it didn't work. And then Elijah comes out from the cave wearing a mask. I guess they were in a pandemic. And he hears the still, small voice. Except it didn't work. If you go back and read the story, you'll see that God then, after this happens, he asks Elijah a question. Elijah, what are you doing? Same question he'd asked him before. And what does Elijah say? Exactly what he had said before. I'm hiding for my life because I'm the only one who's faithful. So notice how in those stories, we, we told the stories, but we cut them off before the, before the end. Right? We cut them off before they actually reached the story Scripture was telling. We edited them down to make them into the story we wanted to hear. We do this also when we preach the prodigal son. You know, all the time we preach the prodigal son story like it's a story with a happy ending. There's a son who abandons his father, goes away in the far country, watches R-rated movies, wastes all of his money, comes home, and is reconciled to the father, right? Except that's not what happens in the story. I mean, that's not all that happens. Yes, there is a son who abandons his father, goes into the far country, and comes home. But when he comes home, all hell breaks loose. And... At the end of the story, the prodigal son is in a party 
His dad is outside with his elder brother. And so you have a younger son who's partying and has forgotten his father and his brother. You've got a father who's not with the younger son who's come home that he wanted to supposedly celebrate, is out talking to an elder son who wants no part of being a brother to the younger son. It's a deeply tragic story. It's not a story of reconciliation. It's not a story about come home, you'll be welcomed. It's come home, you'll be welcomed, and everything will fall apart. And scripture is filled with stories like that. Stories that end in ways that unsettle us because we're used to watching television stories or movies that start one way, create a problem, solve it so we can go home after drinking 74 ounces of Coke or whatever else we have in the theater, right? Back in the days before COVID. So this is, and I'm, I'm nearing the end. All of this is introduction, but it's still near the end of my sermon. The sermon is like 99% introduction and then just 1% body. What we've done, if you'll let me, if you'll forgive the pun, is we've cared more about Noah's Ark, the historicity of Noah's Ark, the finding Noah's Ark, A-R-K, and we've completely ignored Noah's Ark, A-R-C. We've focused on Noah's story like we do on the prodigal story, like we do on the Jonah story, like we do on so many by cutting off the ending scripture actually tells. Because the story scripture actually tells is almost without exception always disturbing. This is true for Abraham, it's true for David. Any character that you care about, if you go back and read about them in scripture, their story ends in a way that's gonna unsettle you. And so does Noah's story. Do you remember this? Again, if you don't know about it, it's better not to look. But Noah is living in this time of incredible wickedness, and he alone finds favor with God. And so he builds an ark. And then he, his wife, his sons, and their wives get on the ark. And it's clear in the story that the way the, the writer tells the story in Genesis that Noah is like Abel. He finds favor with God. And then the flood comes. And what's the point of the flood? What's the purpose of the flood? To wipe wickedness off the face of the earth. But what happens as soon as Noah, the righteous man, comes off the ark? I mean, the first thing he does is offer a sacrifice of clean animals. I'll come back to that in a moment. And then God makes this promise that we read today. I will never again destroy all things. And then we get this little detail in chapter 9 in Genesis in which it says, Noah was a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And if you read well, all your alarm bells go off. Because before the flood, we were told that Noah found favor with God, which reminds us of Abel. But does anybody remember how Cain is described in Genesis 4? He is a man of the soil. He is a man of the soil. So what the writer just told us is that the man who got on the ark as Abel gets off the ark as Cain. The only righteous man, the one who saved the world, when he gets off the ark, 
is the one who needs saving. And this is my sermon to you. All of that's introduction to say this. There is nothing more dangerous than being right. The reason scripture keeps telling us these stories about arcs, A-R-C-S, about righteous people whose lives end in misery is because it does not want us to forget, God does not want us to forget that those of us who call ourselves Christian, those of us who think of ourselves as loved by God and called by God, those of us who are doing ministry of praying for others and giving to the poor, proclaiming the good news and trying to live righteously, we're the ones who are the danger. God has made a new creation. And Noah is self-righteous about it. And then this horrific thing happens with his son. And what I want to leave you with is this. What had happened on the ark is that Noah, instead of humanizing everything else, had become bestial himself. That this is, this is what it means to be human. God makes us like God so that we can humanize everything around us. There's this detail. Scripture is always careful to talk about the face of the earth and that God released the animals in families, humanizing the world, drawing them into the humanity of God that Jesus embodies. But what happens to Noah is what is always a risk for every single one of us, especially if we're faithful. That in the process of doing ministry, in the process of saving people, in the process of being faithful, we don't realize that instead of changing the world around us, instead of bringing life to people around us, we are letting a zoo loose in our own souls. And it strikes me, I don't know that this is what the writer intended, but it strikes me as important that Noah offers a sacrifice of only clean beasts. Because there are unclean beasts in him. That he thought, because God called him to save other people, he didn't need to be saved. And without being apocalyptic, what I hear in my spirit is that this is what's killing us. We prayed today in prayers of the people, you know, God, heal our nation. But judgment begins with us, not them. Every problem you can name right now, from economics to racism, politics, corruption, whatever problem you can name, we're responsible for it. You are responsible for it, and I am responsible for it. And if we do not recognize the ways in which we can become bestial, we can let loose wild beasts in us, if we don't know how to bring them to Jesus, we're going to end up being Cain thinking we're able. And we're going to be people of the ark whose ark ends disastrously, bringing destruction and curse on the people around us. But here's the good news. You can bring all that to Jesus. Jesus is in the wilderness with the wild beasts. And this is the heart of prayer. 
This is the heart of communion, is that all that stuff that's in you that you know about and all the worst stuff that you don't know about doesn't intimidate or frighten him. And in his presence, the unclean becomes clean. I'm sure you've heard in the news about Ravi Zacharias, who's major, major evangelical leader, who has been exposed as a predator, as a rabid beast, who for years preyed on women. What happened there? A man who thought he was an Abel was a king. A man who thought he was an ark was filled up with all kinds of unclean beasts. What went wrong? Somewhere, long before the end of his life, he stopped bringing that to Jesus. And he started to live as if he didn't need that. And this, this is, I think, the issue for every one of us. If we ever lose our sense that there is uncleanness in me. Woe is me. I am unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. If we ever lose that awareness, we will stop coming to Jesus. And we'll start thinking we're Jesus. So, Oasis, I've missed you. I love you. Pay attention to the ark. Don't be like Noah. Don't come off the ark as a cane, thinking you're an Abel. Take all that stuff to Jesus. And you don't have to know it all. I'm not saying do some kind of deep introspection to figure out what all your wild beasts are and name them. That's not my point. My point is that stuff is in you. That stuff is in me. We're not all Robbie Zacharias. We're not all preying on people. But there is stuff in us that would shock us if we knew. Take it to Jesus. Because it's only his presence that can turn Cain into Abel again. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.